Good day everyone. I am your host Krishna Shukla and this is the Giving Circle podcast. A podcast created to provide ideas, inspiration and resources to members of our community working in CSR, philanthropy and fundraising industries with the hope to inspire and also encourage more younger people to join in. I also document stories of unique individuals and their not-for-profits right here. As the world grows and our needs change, philanthropy helps establish a culture of giving for generations and passes on positive attitudes towards money and helping others. So, let's dive right in. Welcome to the Giving Circle. Welcome back to The Giving Circle. My guest today is Craig Pollard. Craig is an award-winning global fundraising consultant. He is also an author and guide to some of the world's most successful nonprofits. From understanding and exploring fundraising in Nigeria to Okinawa to the UK, Craig has traveled the world and knows a great deal about anything and everything about fundraising across 100 plus countries. And I hope to explore some of that with him today. During his travels, Craig has also fitted in a master's degree in violence, conflict and development and has set up a charity called Cycle Africa. Most recently, he is the founder of Fundraising Radicals and I hope to explore some more of that with him today. Now, despite all of these massive achievements, there is a certain relatability that Craig has and I was keen to interview him as in the first few lines on his website, he talks about something which rang very true to me personally, and I'll read it directly from his website now. I'll never forget how lost and overwhelmed I felt when I first started out in fundraising. I had no clue where to start and no one to point me in the right direction. Now I'm sharing everything I've learned along the way to help people like you raise the donations you need for the causes you want to support. And so sharing he is today with all of us. So with that, welcome to the Giving Circle, Craig. Thanks, Krishna. Thanks very much. That's a very kind introduction. It's a very honest introduction and all of these things you have done. So clearly you are all over the place in a very good way because you've traveled and I think, I think you're the perfect person to give us a very global overarching picture of what's happening in the fundraising space around the world. So I think since you since you've been so deeply involved in fundraising for the past 20 plus years, let's start off with in your opinion, what does a good fundraiser look like in the current context in the world? I I think there are a lot of stereotypes about what fundraisers could look like. Mm-hmm. Um there's I agree. a sort of assumption that there's no sort of slick suited men. And it's just the reality is very different. The most effective fundraisers I've ever met were was was an old woman in a holy jumper who absolutely mm. hated the idea of going and asking people for money. I think the most important thing that matters is authenticity. It's about being who you are and sharing your passion, your belief. In, in the cause, in the community, mm. in, in some change that you want to make. And mm. these are the foundations that mean anybody can be a fundraiser. I, I started off, as you said, I was so bad at fundraising, so very, very <laughs> bad. 
I, I, I found a book in the library because I wanted to go on an expedition to Chile in South America and it was rally international. And I just wrote sort of 250 plus letters, dear sir, madam, please fund me. I didn't check the criteria of what they funded. And, and I, and I raised, I think about 150, 200 pounds. And it wow. cost me more than that. Well, it cost my dad more than that in posting. Mm. So <laughs> that, that was where I started. And I, the next year, another expedition came out and I did exactly the same thing, expecting some sort of different outcome. Mm. <laughs> the same thing happened. I raised it even less. So I was actually becoming worse, but that I think everyone is on that journey from sort of cluelessness around fundraising and it can seem really intimidating and overwhelming. Either the world can seem like it's full of donors or it's completely empty of donors. And we're on this journey from, from that sort of not understanding and knowing about fundraising to becoming good and, and confident mm. fundraisers. But I do mm. believe that every, everybody and anybody can do it. And it's important. It's just that a lot of people don't have access to the knowledge and the tools to do fundraising efficiently and effectively. Mm. So I think initially you said that um, it's, it's about building sort of a connection with the donors and the trust. I think a large part of fundraising is building that trust with the donors. And that's probably what takes the longest amount of time because once you have that and you've painted the right picture of, and, and you know, they trust you, that's when the donations start coming in. So if anybody can fundraise and it's for everybody, which you mentioned on your website as well, that I have seen that anybody can fundraise and fundraising is for everyone. What sort of skills do you think are lacking in the current fundraising space or what sort of skills do you think people need to start equipping themselves with to sort of get that, I guess, you know, leverage on building, leverage on building that trust with donors. It's, it's a good place to start trust because of all the research that comes out, trust is the number one determinant of whether you can do fundraising. It's kind of the mm. electricity that fundraising runs on. If it's switched off, then it's impossible to raise funding. If it's switched on, it makes fundraising possible. So the, the challenge is. Do you, do you, I mean, fundraising is super simple. All you need is a story, some story insp that inspires and connects people to your cause or your community or the change you're wanting to achieve. And you need enough people or organizations that can provide the financial resources you need to make that happen. But I think. One of the biggest barriers to fundraising is the, is the fear of asking for money. Mm. But what I find is that going into these conversations with sort of dollar and pound and yen signs sort of in our eyes limits the amount of funding we can raise it's sort of inverse proportionality is that if the more you focus on cash, the less cash you will raise. The less you focus on cash and, and, and trying for that authentic, trusting connection, the more cash you will raise over the long term. But this is about holistic approaches, understanding that mm. the people and organizations that we work with, they're not just ATMs. They can offer, mm. you know, a, a, I've worked with a lot of interesting people over my career and, and one of them, very wealthy man, billionaire said, Craig, I'm not an ATM, 
He said, the, the, mm -hmm. the biggest value I can bring is not cash. It's in the, the impact, the connections, the influence that I can bring for the cause. That's way more than I can physically donate in cash. And that will last you for decades and mm -hmm. maybe even a century to come, that foundation. So it, it's important that fundraising, although it says funding in it, mm -hmm. It's, it's really about building connections and having conversations with people mm -hmm. and organizations, people in organizations. So what you're saying is that, and I agree with you that, you know, it's all about building those connections because they will pay off, not if not immediately in the long term, as you keep building that relationship and as your connection possibly goes out and talks to other people about what you're doing, but. At the end of the day, if you are an NGO who is, you know, given a certain target, I guess, to fundraise, which is, which is quite common as well, right? How do you, how do you go around that? And how do you keep the balance between not treating somebody like an ADM maybe and, and, you know, making them feel valued? Do you have any tips or strategies on that? Yeah, the, the, the challenge of fundraising within organizations is, is really tough. There's a, there's a mm. constant tension there. And I think increasingly we're going to see a shift from these sort of target focused fundraising to different measurements of what constitutes success mm. when it comes to fundraising, because it has to be more yeah. than just the cash. Mm. And, and I think the organizations that are doing it well, understand that cash is what comes downstream from authentic engagement. Mm. It's just one of the many things that comes downstream. So if we can stop thinking about just the targets and think about the people behind the targets and also thinking about purpose, what is the purpose? Why should this person care enough to make a donation? That's what it always comes down to. Mm -hmm. Do we have this shared purpose? And increasingly I'm seeing that the organizations that stop focusing on funding and the targets and focus instead on, on the connection and the purpose and the values overlap between them and donors are the ones that are more successful. Mm. What, I, mm. you know, why is it that some organizations set targets and, and smash through them? Mm. Why is it so other organizations set targets and fail to meet them? And it's mm. not about the targets. It's about the culture of fundraising that they've built. It's about the supportive, nurturing, creative space that they've created within the organization mm. that allows fundraising and fundraisers to flourish and grow mm. and get on with building authentic mm. connections with people. Mm. But a lot of the things that we're talking about right now are all fairly intangible. You can't really measure when a connection is going to pay off or when, when the storyteller is going to connect with somebody. And I think in a lot of the charities I volunteered for and now the, the organization I work for, measuring impact in the short term or medium term is probably one of our biggest challenges. Because apart from the kind of donations you're receiving, there isn't really a direct way to measure, I suppose, your impact. So do you have any examples of anybody who's doing it well? Or, or in your opinion, how, how should one be measuring impact then on those things? I, I, I think... The, ch the challenge is being obsessed with what we can measure mm -hmm. is 
it is really common across the nonprofit sector. It gives comfort when actually it, it's kind of more important for us to be, become comfortable with being uncomfortable of, mm. of, 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 of not being so focused on, on the end saying, you know, in five years, we want this donor to have donated $5 million. Mm. What we, what instead is what I, cause I work very much in the high value fundraising space. So I'm not mm. in the sort of individual giving up. I've, I've managed mm. individual giving programs. I've done some, every single type of fundraising there is mm. more in the high value space of so corporate partnerships, high mm. net worth individuals, big chunks of cash and big high value partnerships that go beyond cash. Mm. And the, the challenge with, with, with being focused on, on measuring everything is it sees the horizon and, mm. and you don't always know where that partnership, where that connection is going to end up. Mm. And it's saying it's becoming all right with that. It's saying, look, we have a clear overlap of values and purpose. We're both pull, pulling in the right direction, the same direction. We want to achieve the same things. This, we want to impact on this community, this this cause, this change, instead of trying to put a dollar figure on that in five, 10 years time, let's, let's think about purpose and values as our guardrails. Let's say, look, we have the same purpose, which is the sort of end point we're aiming for. We have the same values. So let's use those as our guardrails to guide the partnership and be open to where that's going to take us. We don't know yet. But mm-hmm. the best partnerships, the best connections with donors are those where there is the space for co-creation as well. And I think this is something that NGOs and INGOs and charities really struggle with. Mm-hmm. Letting go and allowing individuals and organizations come in to influence the mission and the work of the organization. And I think mm-hmm. increasingly as we go forward, that's going to become mm-hmm. a requirement for donors to get involved. With mm. So w- when you say donors can get involved, that's quite a refreshing idea because you're right. Like from every, every organization I've worked with, it's very outward where we're reaching out, we're doing things for them, we're delivering comms for them. Whereas this is you saying that they need to kind of come to us as well and start, you know, we need to incorporate the suggestions. So what does that look like? Or is, is it happening somewhere in the world already? I think it's happening all over the place. So I... I come with a very global perspective. I've worked in more than a hundred countries, so mm. I, I don't have that sort of Western centric model of mm. fundraising in my brain. Mm. But what I see is increasingly, and, and this is sort of related to web three, it's related to, to blockchain. It, it's, it's related to how movements are built is that mm. I think increasingly people aren't trusting organizations and institutions. And they're mm-hmm. working in the spaces between these. They're creating mm-hmm. movements, they're, they're social action. They're, they're seeing these as inefficient. So what we're seeing is a sort of decentralization of losing control and letting mm-hmm. go of control. And the, this is the, the, the future isn't about hoarding control and saying, this is ours. Do you want to come into our party? It's just like, this is, this is open for everyone to use. And mm-hmm. this is. This is an open partnership. We're creative. We're, we're, we're bringing people together. We're convening, we're collaborating. And I think increasingly what organizations are going to have to do is let go of the idea that they control this space, this sort of access to these communities, these, these causes, they don't own those anymore. 
And what I think they have to do is the nonprofits, charities need to move to the spaces between organizations. They need to be supporting and collaborating and bringing people together to, to solve the problems because it's also that nonprofits aren't, aren't big enough mm. to, to deliver these fundamental changes. They, they, they can't do it alone. It has to be done in partnership. So what is, you know, what does true partnership look like? It's not a partnership isn't presented to a donor saying, hey, would you like to fund this? Because a partnership is, is of equals of, of co-creation, people coming together. And one of the great examples I've worked on in the past is with WaterAid, where they, they, they would invite their sort of top, top corporate partnership prospects. And these are the big sort of 10 million pounds or $20 million plus projects. They'd invite them in and say, look, bring your smartest people. We'll bring our smartest people and we'll get them in a room. We'll sign a, a memorandum of understanding. We don't know where this is going to go, but let's get them all together. And then there's going to be funding involved and then we'll see where it goes. And there's a real boldness and sort of refreshing, mm. it's really refreshing to have that approach. And it resulted in massive high value partnerships because it's, mm. it's true partnership. It's based on trust and it's based on co-creation and true collaboration. Sounds good. I want to take a step back for a minute and, and everything you've, you've covered, I suppose that ties in, in some way to fundraising radicals that you have founded. So can you elaborate more on what the fundraising radicals is all about? So about, so I've always been sort of global in my approach to fundraising. I, I've worked all over the world, mainly in the global South. So mainly in Asia, Africa, Middle East and Latin America. Mm. And what, what became very clear early on was that Western models, Northern models of fundraising make a series of assumptions. So they work in America or the UK or in Europe, there's a certain amount of fundraising infrastructure. There's an understanding of that people donate, for example, there's charity law, there's charity tax, there's tax incentives to give. Mm. There are institutions that are sort of building the understanding and training. There's consultancy, there's all this ecosystem around fundraising. But when you go somewhere like Myanmar, Sri Lanka, Peru, Afghanistan, there is no fundraising infrastructure. So mm. the models don't work. So what we did, what sort of worked with civil society organizations in more than a hundred countries now is to, is to rip up the old sort of global North fundraising model that says you do this, 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 and this, and really redesign it and thinking about what are the tools and what are the, what is the knowledge that is needed to raise funding locally as well, because this is about power. Fundraising and funding is about power. When, for example, in the Philippines, somebody on the global fundraising leadership program, which is run by the fundraising radicals, it's a, it's a coaching training and mentoring program. And one of the graduates from that raised an unrestricted $320,000 donation from a high net worth individual in Manila. So. Wow. But that, and it's, and that's amazing because, but it does, it's not mm. just about what that allows them to do programmatically and as a project mm. that's resources, but what I, what it does is build confidence. Mm. It changes the conversation and the tone and nature of the dynamic 
between the Philippines office and between head office in New York. It changes about how projects and programs will be funded in the future. And that's what we do at the Fundraising mm. Radicals. I've gathered all of this knowledge and experience and what I'm doing now through the Fundraising Radicals is making it accessible. So there's a whole range, all of the mm. tools that are free. There's a, an online course and there's the mentoring program. It's really about equipping and empowering and, and, and engaging uh, sort of fundraising leaders who are based in the global south. So people mm. who can go on to lead programs, who can raise a million, $5 million, but from local sources, as well as international sources as well. And what it does mm. is it starts to shift the power towards the people in the communities that are seeking the funding. So people in New York, Geneva, London aren't making decisions, but it's the people who are there right next to communities, working with the communities from the communities that are making the decisions about mm -hmm. funding. That's fantastic. And how, how many years has fundraising radicals been running for now? Or when was it founded rather? Well, the idea was sort of 10 plus years. Okay. It's officially been in existence for, I think, five now. So it, 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 it's quite young still, but it's incredible. You know, we're on our third, our third variation of the films because the first step, if anybody mm. ever tells you to do an online course and tells you you can set it up in 20 minutes, it, it's not true. <laughs> it took me about four years to get the, mm. uh, get the course up to a point where I was happy with it. You know, that was two whole courses that mm. were scrapped because the, mm. the video and the film wasn't up to scratch. And also I was learning the whole time. And it's, yeah, it's, it's taken a, it's taken a while to get here, but this year we, the fundraising radicals was the, was shortlisted by reimagining fundraising, which is the global innovation challenge, fundraising innovation challenge that was announced at the international fundraising Con Congress in Amsterdam this year. And we're one of six finalists who get seed funding, but we are also find out, find out that we are the highest evaluated project within that group. So mm -hmm. it, it, it means a lot that we yeah. have essentially won the global fundraising innovation challenge with, with a product that isn't particularly tech focused, mm -hmm. it's very much about bringing two things, training and the idea of decolonization and shifting power and training people in high value fundraising so they can raise mm. funding locally and give themselves mm. financial resilience and mm. independence. And, and that's, uh, and it's delivered online through webinars, et cetera, but it's, uh, it's, it's relatively low tech compared to, mm. to the other submission. That's fantastic. Congratulations. First of Thank all, you. I think that deserves a clapping sound, which I'm now going to try putting yeah. into the podcast. I don't know if you can hear it. <laughs> That was my first attempt at trying something new and technology, techie stuff on this platform. But that's amazing. I think the whole thing you spoke about on infrastructure, fundraising infrastructure is, is a whole other conversation that we can have because there's so much to expand on there. But in terms of just focusing on the way fundraising is done, I, I suppose infrastructure is a much deeper sort of terminology and a much broader, you know, well, I guess it's about investing. How is it different in North versus South? Okay. Kind well, of. Infrastructure is sort of at the, at the, 
at one end of the spectrum of investment. Mm. Mm. If you want to raise a lot of money, you need a lot of investment. But if, mm-hmm. if you choose as a volunteer to volunteer your time to raise mm. funding, that is also an investment, just at the other end of the scale. Mm. And when it comes to infrastructure in Africa, Asia, Middle East, and Latin America, it, it, it's that, you know, there are unique challenges everywhere, mm. but somewhere like Myanmar, there is no charity law. So mm. there's no initial incentive to donate and do, the mm. idea of donating is quite a, a foreign mm. concept. It's a I agree. thing that they do I agree. in mm. North America and Europe, mm. but when you sort of unpick and, and equip and empower people who have a deep understanding of the culture, then it helps them to unlock funding. For example, in Myanmar, Mm. it's very common for monks to fund religious buildings and stupas, and there is no shortage of funding for that. And and they do it because of karma, you know, the sort of afterlife. Interesting. Yes. Yes. And that's a, a big motivation in Myanmar for, for these donations. So what we did, and, and this is, again, this is not my expertise. I, I bring the fundraising expertise, but hmm. what's more valuable is, is the deep understanding of the local context. And this is what happens when, when, when people who are in Myanmar and want to fundraise for a cause in Myanmar, hmm. have, when they have the knowledge and skills and tools to be able to do that. It's phenomenal what they can do because what happened was we decided that can we equate supporting an education project in Myanmar, a, a building Myanmar's first liberal arts and sciences university, can we equate that with karma? Mm. And that was the conversation that they were able to have. But what, what became clear was that after those conversations, and this is back to the innovation pieces, that fundraising is always an innovation. It's always about trying, you can spend six months writing a fundraising strategy, and then you realize that you've got a massive chunk of it wrong, and that's six months mm. wasted. What's better is if you take an innovative innovation approach to fundraising, to try something, see if it works, refine it, reflect, and then try it again, and then focus on the bits that do work and do more of it and do less of the things that don't work. And in Myanmar, they, they had these conversations with monks and it became clear that it wasn't the monks who were making the decisions to donate. Every monk has a sponsor and they are the people with the money who are buying the karma. They just funnel mm-hmm. it through the monks. Oh, and so, interesting. yes. So what happened was they, they had these conversations with some sponsors of monks and they clearly saw the benefit of education. And that the, the idea of equating it with karma was, was really powerful. And those conversations, sort of the idea of giving back to communities, providing, you know, the classic motivations of donors that they want to, want to give back. They want to provide opportunities that they maybe didn't have to young people, to, to people from, from all across Myanmar. And, and they raised a massive amount of money within the first year, just from that Mm. realization. And, and this is, I think if, if, if that was seen, well, it was seen from New York because we actually approached somebody to say, look, is this, is this a project you could support a major, major donor, a well-known funder 
in the US and they were saying no, because we don't believe that 95% of the funding for the project can be raised in Myanmar from Myanmarese companies and individuals. And they, from their perspective and their being that far away with their lack of understanding of the culture, mm -hmm. they made the wrong call because they couldn't see it. And that's what the fundraising radicals is about. It's about really equipping, empowering, and engaging the people who, who do understand their cultures deeply and do mm. are deeply connected with the causes and the change that they want to make. And they're incredibly well networked to really just unlock that ability to turn it into a funded reality. What a fantastic story. I really enjoyed that, the whole karma thing. And I think that applies to a lot of other, other countries in the sort of ASEAN region. So I would think Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, India might have similar sort of approaches to giving, which is very interesting. And I've never, I've never heard something like this in Australia, in any of our annual reports and documents and things like that. So it's quite unique. Last couple of questions, because we're almost out of time. Tech and fundraising. You spoke about Bitcoin and I think cryptocurrency a while back. What has been your experience and what sort of trends are you seeing with fundraising and, and the tech space? Fascinating. Tech, I see, I see tech driving a lot of problematic issues within the sector. I see crowdfunding platforms making a lot of money. And when questions are asked where that money's come from, it's come from donors. It's come from, from organizations that are funding. There's a, there's a, a very powerful PR that comes from crowdfunding that only talks about the positive, the upside of the, the, the very small percentage of crowdfunders that are successful. And when it comes to, to the, the deeper tech, the, the blockchain, we're in a very, we're very early stages and mm -hmm. I think. The reality is that charities, nonprofits can't afford the risk to be at the front of the queue when it comes to innovate. We have to be learning from the organizations that do have the resources that can afford to lose big chunks of cash. You can afford to make massive catastrophic mistakes and learn from them. Because if we do that, our nonprofits will fall over. We don't have the financial space. That yep. We don't have the governance cult yep. the cultures to be able to do that. Mm. So we have to look to others. I think one of the web three is really interesting, not where it is now, but where it will be in 10, 20 years time. And mm. the same with blockchain is that it, it points us in a direction towards transparency. Getting back to your first point about trust is that mm -hmm. people need to be able to trust where their money is going, the impact that, that their money, their donation, their, their, whatever it is they've committed is going to deliver. And I think blockchain gives a really interesting opportunity to provide that. But again, nonprofits shouldn't be at the tip of that spear. Yeah. We need yeah. to be a little bit behind mm -hmm. and that's okay. Yeah. And to adapt. That is okay. I don't think any nonprofit is in a position to gamble away chunks of, of money that they've acquired anyway. So painstakingly through, through donations. So, yeah. Yeah. I, and I think, but I think we have to be a little bit more willing to innovate 
And I think with the right sort of guardrails in place, fundraising innovation is happening and it's happening through, I mean, the reimagining fundraising is a classic example of, you know, I've worked on some really, with some organizations that are doing really interesting work. So massive nonprofits like the International Committee of the Red Cross, doing mm. really interesting work in humanitarian impact bonds. So it's, it's not like all charities and nonprofits are equal in size in having this space to innovate. I think there are many different types of innovation. So we can look to the bigger organizations that are able to do this as well within the sector, but also accept that fundraising is innovation. Every single, the approach requires innovation. It requires this trying these, these conversations, this connection to see where it's going to go and, and, and new explorations to, to, to think creatively about how projects and purpose are funded. Yeah, fantastic. Thank you for that. And I do apologize. I know I keep switching between the themes of the questions, but it's such a broad field. I have to ask you all as many questions as I can pack into this interview. So on your website, Craig, I think there was a sentence around wastage. The world can and must fundraise smarter is what you've written. And I think it points to a bit of wastage in the fundraising sector, which I, which I thought was interesting. So do you want to elaborate on what that looks like and what can be done to prevent it, I suppose. So I was, I, I talk to fundraisers all over the world and regularly they say that one in 20 international fundraising applications to a global trusts, global institution, et cetera, are successful. And that's their idea of success. One in 20, that's a 5% mm. success rate. So that's 95% of their time. And is spent building unsuccessful applications. I deeply believe even if we half that, that is transformational because every year, tens of millions of fundraising hours, precious fundraising hours are wasted doing things that will not make a difference when it comes to funding. And, and when and, you say that, are you referring largely to these applications and grants that people apply for or other things as well? So have you heard about, have you heard of Blue Ocean Strategy? Blue Ocean Strategy. No. It's, big, it's big in the business world. So the idea is that there are two, two oceans. Okay. Hmm. The first is red. It's the idea is that this is high, com, highly competitive markets, places, for example, in the fundraising world, it's about applications to trust where you can't influence the, the process to, to institutions, but where you're just one of 10,000 applications for funding and the, and the waters are red because they're bloodied by the competition. Okay. By the fundraising sharks and whatever it is that live in there. The idea is you want to, so you need a strategy. The reality is that many fundraisers have to operate, get their elbows out and create some space for themselves within these red oceans. And the strategy for that is really about maximizing your competitive advantage. So if it's a trust, who can you link to on the board or who can you get a, a, a sort of somebody they respect to introduce you to them, to, to just increase the likelihood of you sticking out of that pile of 10,000 funding applications. Then 
The aim is you want to move as much of your fundraising to the blue oceans. These are the places where you render the competition irrelevant. You create this, your own space for funding. So it's working through your organic networks, the people, you know, to access funding that maybe wasn't there or isn't even considered or on anyone else's radar, or because you have such a massive competitive advantage, you're the only person in the room to have those mm. conversations. So the idea is to try and move as much of your fundraising over to those blue oceans and, mm. you know, the red oceans, things like giving Tuesday. It's only the bigger organizations that can survive in those and make a problem. Mm. Whereas the smaller organizations should wait until the, the following week, for example, when the, mm. when the airwaves are less congested and less overwhelmed with funding requests. So do you it, have any examples? Of, because obviously you work with so many different charities all around the world and red, red ocean charities, we get an idea. It's the big, big players of the industry. Well, I well, suppose. well it, it, it's more the market. So the red ocean is mm. the market. So that's where everybody is diving in. The massive mm. organizations have like teams of grant writers. So mm. they, they are more likely to succeed. But if you are, if you're one alone fundraiser. And mm -hmm. you have responsibility for every type of fundraising of your organization. Do you want to spend your time in those red waters mm -hmm. trying to get a tiny chunk? That's where the wastage is because the strategies require that you should be spending more of your time in the blue oceans, like working with your trustees, your networks, your senior volunteers, your corporate partners, your everyone through your organic network. And those are the people who are closest to you to to, to maximize your chance of getting funding and support from them. Mm -hmm. No, that makes sense. Now, Craig, on your website, it says that you wanted to be a vet initially, yeah. <laughs> and then you decided that that's not a good idea. Then you went into a, math a mathematics degree. Yeah. And then from there on, your journey has, you know, it's evolved and you've grown and you've, uh, you know, developed all these fantastic things for all of us in the world, which is, which is great. But going back to the start when you were a, a newbie, I guess, like myself and so many others in the fundraising space, what were some of the first steps you took in the industry to build your career? And what were some of the first things you did to strengthen yourself as a fundraiser? That's a great question. I would not do as I did and try to do everything by myself. I didn't have anyone to guide me. I didn't right. have anyone. And I think there are so many sh ways to shortcut our learning nowadays. There, there's so many resources online, free resources online. I'd, I'd recommend people find a mentor, someone that they can respect who's maybe two or three steps further up the ladder to, mm -hmm. to sort of guide them. For me, it was, I was an accountant. I've had a very meandering path to where I am today. It's taken me. <laughs> It's not a direct route, but I don't think anyone's is when it comes, nobody mm -hmm. wakes up, you know, on their sort of eighth birthday and think, you know what, I really, I really want to be a fundraiser. Mm. It, it, it just doesn't happen. Yeah. And, and I think we, we all fall into it in some way, shape mm -hmm. or form as a really practical way of, of making a difference of, of resourcing a cause or a community or a change. And, and, and making that sort of connection with it. And it's a really practical way of getting in, involved with it. So I, I, uh, I think also transferable skills are really undervalued in the sector. Mm. 
I, I was an accountant and, and I found a training course that took transferable skills and turned them into fundraising skills. And it came with a six month placement as charity. Mm. And, and I just took the, took the leap. So that was my first step. So I think there's a, there's an element of taking a risk, mm. but I think increasingly also there's, there are a lot of problems within the nonprofit sector as there are, it, it, it's a lot easier for me as a European white guy to talk about my steps in fundraising, because that's, that's irrelevant to, to a lot of people. Most fundraisers are women, increasingly fundraisers are not European. And, and I think there are a whole set of mm -hmm. barriers that, that I have never had to face that, that people, other people do have to face. Mm -hmm. And, and I sort of had my privilege has, has been hugely helpful in getting me where I am today. So I think it's being recognizing that everyone has to find their own journey and, and overcome a whole set of barriers and, and they have to find their own way. But what I do is, is find somebody who's, who you think can help you, someone who, 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 who sort of reflects where you want to be in four, five, 10 years mm. time, and then have those conversations and ask them to help for support, for guidance. Mm. And, and also I think trust your instincts. I think there's a real, there's a real temptation to look at people who have been fundraising for a really long time and think this person knows it all. And it's totally mm. not true. We're all mm. just finding our own way, just a difference, mm. you know, further down the line. And I think what's most important is to trust your instincts because the reality is you're closer to the future than, than I am. Your, your understanding of the next generation of donors, it's much, you're much closer to that group than I am. So I think trust and understand your expertise and what you bring, but also it's, it's not rocket science fundraising. Mm. It's logical. It's about helping people connect mm. to a cause. And if you can do that, then I think, you know, you can be a fundraiser. That's fantastic advice. Thank you so much. And I think on the top, on the point you made about free resources, fundraising radicals is also a fantastic resource that people can tap into. So little plug there about your, about your work. As a final question, I want to wrap up with all of my guests and I get them to tell me their favorite, I guess, most memorable moment to date in their, in their field or their proudest moment to date in the fundraising or philanthropy industry. And I know you've probably got a thousand stories, but in 60 seconds to wrap up, what is your most memorable moment to date in your work? I've, I've raised a lot of money, a lot of big donations, but it gets to the point when working for big organizations that it's just reeling in seven, eight figure donations. And, it, mm. and it's not, and I was involved in the, the dragon boat racing team in Okinawa three, well, started three or four years ago and I decided that to walk the talk of my fundraising radicals approach and I did the step-by-step -step. I followed my approach to the letter and I made one approach and I raised one ten thousand US dollar donation which bought a new boat for the club which is what we needed and I've raised 10 million pound gifts donations mm -hmm. 
And I did not celebrate anywhere near as much for that one as I did for that $10,000. That was just transformative because it was so close. It was personal mm-hmm. and it made everything that we wanted to do possible mm. in terms of racing dragon boats randomly in Okinawa. Fantastic. Mm, fantastic. I think that deserves some more applause on that, on that story. I actually do a bit of dragon boating myself as well. I find it very exhausting in Canberra. Yeah. It's just too much in the Canberra winter. But that brings us to the end of our episode. Thank you so much, Craig, for your time and all your wisdom and your advice. I look forward to exploring the fundraising radicals page a little bit more and i'll be sharing all the links with our listeners so they can connect with you as well thank you for your time no thank you it's been a pleasure and good luck with it all thanks for having me i really appreciate it i am krishna your host signing off 